All right, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're actually going to move out of chapter 7 today. So I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I know your Bibles turn there almost automatically now without even you having to turn the pages, but we're going to move forward. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll bring the entirety of this chapter, verses 1 through 13. God's Word says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in uh, sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscious Conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols. And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Well, This morning we are finally moving away from our study on singleness and a secondary study on marriage out of chapter 7. We're going to move forward into chapter 8 and we're not going to spend nearly the amount of time here, not because it is less important. Um, For one thing, it's only 13 verses instead of 40, so that's one reason, but... uh, I think it's an area that needs to be certainly addressed, and we see it addressed in multiple passages of Scripture. Not necessarily about your diet. That's not. <laughs> maybe that's a place to start today, since we're having a carrion dinner afterwards. <clears throat> but rather the principle underlying the instruction here for the church in Corinth. And please remember, we're dealing with a church that has puffed itself up. And so when we come to this time and again, this idea that, listen, here's the things that are destroying you as a church because you are glorying in them. And we often think that, well, these are good things to glory in, but they aren't. And particularly in this area of Christian liberty, um, we need to be very cautious. Remember that the Corinthian view of liberty meant that they would even take pains to glory in the fact that there was immorality of the grossest nature amongst them, that they were tolerating. And Paul 
instruction to them was clearly this is not what Christian liberty is all about. And he's going to be moving into now a little more subtle area. I mean, we would all step back and say, well, obviously, a man sleeping with his mother or with his father's wife is not something we are going to tolerate in our church. Um, and yet, uh, we are not safe in regards to that area alone. We'll tolerate it in our entertainment. We'll tolerate it in our environments that we have control over in our homes. And we become just as guilty when we allow such immorality before our eyes when God's Word tells us, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes, O Lord. And so we took that instruction and we now come into something that again we could easily say, oh, this isn't us. And we start saying those dreaded two words, oh, I know, I know. Oh, I already know this, Pastor. Which means you can't teach me anything in this area. Much the way the Corinthians were thinking is that they had achieved a level of spiritual aptitude that they could speak to anyone and say, I know, I know. Rather than saying, what does the Word of the Lord say? And so we come into chapter 8 with this underlying attitude of spiritual arrogance in the church at Corinth that Paul has described already as the carnal church and that we have been comparing to the modern church, specifically the western church that we're involved in as the carnal church age. Before we look into the passage, let's go, Lord, in prayer very quickly. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered in your name, to open your word and to have it so available to us. But Lord, again, we are warned that with such access, we have a great accounting that we have to have before you. That we're going to be held responsible for this time in your word. And Lord, I pray that you might guard it from error. You might guard it from the opinion of this man or of man's philosophies at all. That your word might go forth as only it should, and that is by your spirit and to your glory. We praise this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the second or third or fourth, depending upon your view of the book of Corinthians, question that the Corinth church was bringing to Paul regarded the interaction between them and their culture, specifically their culture before they became Christians. How do I interact with that world that I have been saved out of? And certainly within the Corinthian church, there were those who looked at that situation and say, nothing of that is of any consequence. Um, their idols are just rocks or pieces of metal um, or philosophies. And, and I can engage in that and I know what they are, that they aren't really gods, that they don't control the weather, they don't, they don't have any influence. Um, and so I can, I can still participate in some of those things, but with a knowledge that 
I'm not engaging in the rest of it. And then there were other believers who were freshly out of that and associated that with their old life, with their old worship patterns, and said, no, we can't go back to that because I am now of Christ. And so once you sit in the house of an idol and eat, you are worshiping Him, and they would struggle with that. And, and by struggle with that, and we um, let's define a word right away. All right, here's the word that's being used in a lot of Christian circles is, well, that's an offense. And what that usually means is that offends my sensitivities, and that is not what the Bible uses that word to apply. It's not, you offended my sensitivities, and uh, you're doing something that I don't really see eye to eye with you, and therefore, you're offending me. Okay? We take that modern idea of the word offense, and we bring it forward uh, as though, oh, you know, don't offend your brethren. If that were the case, I couldn't stand here and preach. Because I'm pretty sure every Sunday some of you get offended. Because we do. I get offended sometimes when I'm sitting in my office and I'm reading this. I'm like, oh, really, Lord? <laughs> really? I, I, oh. You see, our sensitivities are not what Paul's concerned about here. But rather, when the Bible uses the term offense, make sure you do not offend your brethren, it's referring to stumbling in their walk with God. That you are drawing them into weakening their faith even farther to the point that they are going to be involved in either leaving their faith, that they are going to be involved in going back into sins that had captured them in the past, that they are going to be greatly debilitated in their walk with the Lord. That is what the biblical idea of offense means. It is not, you hurt my feelings, or that's not what I was always taught. But rather, it is creating a doubt in someone's mind about, that's what Christianity is? That's not what I thought I signed up for. And if they're the mature Christian, and I'm a brand new believer and they're living like that, this isn't real. And they start to contemplate abandoning the faith. And this is what Paul's referring to when he talks about offenses. And so he is going to address one area of interaction here in chapter 8 with your old life, your old pagan ways. Let's look at this one area that they had question about uh, and they wanted Paul to make a declaration, yay or nay. And like Paul always does, these things are a little more complicated than just yes and no. And so he's going to give them the full theological basis for how do I interact with who I used to be, with that world? Uh, how do I interact with the world that's still captured in paganism and, and idolatry and all the junk that was back there? And where can I do I draw the line and how strongly do I draw the line? And do I impose that line on others? And Paul wants to approach it by reminding us of a very important principle. He's gonna, he has already used in the book of Galatians written a little earlier than this book. And we're going to look there in a little bit. So we come to verse 1. It says, Now concerning things offered to idols, that was the question asked. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up but loves edifies. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. And we have this idea of knowledge. And of course the Gnostics were really into secret knowledge. And here are the Corinthians, and this is a dangerous thing, when we start to think, well, I 
have grasped a principle of my faith. And I have laid hold on that principle. Now I'm going to live it to the nth degree. And newly grasped principles of faith that are tempted to live to the nth degree are dangerous. And I'll tell you why. It's because it leads you into an unbalanced life. Because you want to live out that knowledge without taking into consideration the rest of the truth that God has revealed. And so here the Corinthians could come to Paul and say, no, idols are nothing. They're just rocks. They're just things. They're nothing. So what is it? You know, so I can involve myself there and I'm not worshiping the rock. I know that's not God. I can participate there. Um, and, and Paul's like, I'm not questioning that truth. That is truth. They are not gods. They are just rocks. They're just pieces of metal. They're hunks of stone. They're a tree, maybe, or the sun. Whatever men worship. Yes, you have knowledge. But you don't have wisdom in the application of that knowledge to your Christian life. See, just because I can doesn't mean I should. And that is the place where wisdom comes into play. So when we get this knowledge that I have this, and by the way, lots of Christians get this way when they first get saved. They know something their friends don't and they, and they kind of uh, have some compassion. They want to share with them the gospel, but they tend to try to ram it down their throats um, because this is something I've figured out and you haven't gotten. I've encountered plenty of people who have figured out certain parts of theology and are sure that I was just too ignorant to understand it and if they could just force it on me that they could get me to see it their way. It didn't work, um, usually. Uh, knowledge puffs us up. We have this understanding of a principle we think that we're the first ones who have acquired it or we're going to acquire it better than anyone else in the past and we're going to apply it to our lives and we walk around almost with a degree of spiritual pride i had one gentleman at church that um, got saved out of a horrible background and uh, had a powerful testimony um, but I found that he had zero patience for anyone else saved out of that kind of background. Because, you see, he was an alcoholic and tobacco user, all those kind of things. He was really wrapped up in it all. And he said, the day I got saved, I lost all taste for that stuff. Well, praise God, right? I don't question that testimony at all. What was the problem? The problem was is that he expected that anyone who was truly saved would have the exact same experience as him, and therefore any believer that had any taste for it still in their mouth or any desire after it, their salvation was in question because he applied his experience as ultimate truth that needed to be applied to everyone. And it became a source of spiritual pride that he could live it and no one else could. Yes, the Corinthians claimed a knowledge of the truth. Remember that from chapter 1 and 2. We are this, we are that. They put men's names on themselves and walked around and says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus. 
They were all about boosting themselves over each other. Much like the Gnostics who came into Galatia and claimed this deeper knowledge of spiritual truth and totally messed up this church. So that Paul writes the book of Galatians and says, what is going on with you foolish people that you would listen to these people who claim to have this superior inside knowledge of God that isn't really truth at all. They're trying to draw you back into something that God doesn't want you in. And there again, Paul has to address the idea of liberty because he has to he has to advance it because it's under attack there with the Corinthians. It's the other extreme, and so we have a, a simple teaching of Paul for both extremes. So here's over here the Corinthians who say we're going to live out our liberty to the nth degree. We're going to live it because we know it's true. We're free in Christ, and I'm going to do whatever I please because I know I'm worshiping the one true living God. And idols are nothing, and, and I'm just going to live it out free, free living. Then you had the opposite problem over here in Galatia. Over here in Galatia, the problem was, we have to go back to the law. We have to go back, we have to live the law. We've got to go back, get circumcised, the food laws, all of it. We've got to live that. And if we're not living that law, then we're not really Christ. So you have the libertarians and the legalists Paul has to deal with them both. And you know what he has to say to them both? You have liberty. But you better constrain it by love. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Just so you don't have to take my word for it. Galatians is the next book after 2 Corinthians. There it is. Galatians chapter 5. Again, listen very carefully to what it it says. Verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So here he's dealing with the legalist. In Corinth, he's dealing with the libertarian. And so what's the, what's the confines of this liberty? Look at verse 13. For you, brethren, this is Galatians 5.13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, Serve one another for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbors yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And so here, both in 1 Corinthians 8 and in Galatians 5, Paul has the same message to both of the extremes in Christianity. To the libertarian, he says, listen, yes, it's true you have liberty, but what you're lacking is humility and love. And over here to the legalist, he says, you don't understand, you have liberty. But now that you've been exposed and I've been telling you you have liberty, don't forget. Love is the constraining factor to your freedom. And when we get this balanced Christian life, we realize that yes, I have a great liberty in Christ and that the law no longer has its weight on my shoulders. And yet I can live a self-controlled life and the control over my life is about my love. God's love through everybody for others. Particularly my brethren and for the lost. How should I live for them? You see, knowledge puffs us up into thinking, I have my rights. And this is really feeds American carnality, doesn't it? In church, I have my rights. Because we've been taught that we have rights. 
We've been, since we were wee high, the grasshopper. And by the way, as soon as your kids send your kids off to school, it's one of the first things they're going to find out is they have rights. You know, and I remember my kids coming from school and I'm going to call the police. I was like, <laughs> you'll never see a phone in the rest of your life, you know, if you want to play that. Because they were convinced by their school that they had rights. You know, um, and God's word doesn't declare that. Very few times. We have a right to death. You want that one? I don't find very many claiming that. Eternal judgment. But we believe we have rights. And so once I have this knowledge of my condition spiritually and the liberty that is mine in Christ, because I'm a good American, I believe I should exercise my rights. Because we haven't discovered the corollary principle, and that is that the Christian life is not about you. It's about serving God, and we serve Him by serving one another. And so this individualism and this exalting of my rights and exercising them uh, to its fullest for my benefit and for my ease and for my comfort is not a biblical prop position at all. And so Paul rightly concludes, knowledge puffs up. Yes, it exalts you up that you think that you have the right to behave a certain way or to participate in a certain activity because you're not really uh, worshiping like they are. But the fact is, is that if we consider carefully our ways, not for ourselves and what is easy or comfortable or enjoyable to us, but rather for others. We would live a life that is not about exercising rights, but is about edifying others. Love edifies. It builds up. So instead of puffing ourselves up, which by the way, these are great words in Scripture here in verse 1. Um, ones to make arrogant. But I, I like the, the choice here of puffs up to make arrogant um, because uh, you know what puffy things are just full of air. And what does it take to make them collapse? Just a little bit of weight. Poof. They go flat. You work on that self-exaltedness I have this great knowledge. I have this great liberty. And someday you'll mature enough to walk with in my steps where you can have worse kind of liberty. And it was, let's pop that bubble. But then the word edify, this is what love does. It builds. It builds up. It's the difference between those little blow-up jumpy things that everybody gets for their birthdays around here. I don't know about in your neighborhood. Every parent apparently has to go rent a blow-up jumpy thing for their birthday for their kid. I don't know how much they pay for that. I'm afraid to even ask. Uh, i got a good Christian friend that's involved in that and, and makes a lot of money, so I guess. But uh, is the difference between that and a gymnasium? This is temporary, weak, susceptible, this is relatively permanent, strong, enduring. 
The Bible says when we function as Christians in a loving manner, the object of our life is not how free can I live. The object of the life is how much can I serve. And once that becomes the object of my life, once that becomes the desire that I want to lovingly serve others, then knowledge gets constrained to its proper perimeters. So yes, true enough, you have this liberty, but you also have a responsibility. Are we really willing to exercise our liberty to the degree that we are willing to even let a weaker brother perish just so that we can strut around and say, I have the liberty to do this. And do you not think that you'll be under judgment for the exercise of that liberty? You see, verse 2 is this description of such a person. They think they know something, but they really don't. He knows nothing yet as he ought to know. And so we discover this principle. I have liberty here. In this area, because those are just idols. And, and we can apply that. And I know that you guys don't encounter a lot of idolatry, although if you're involved with a lot of Catholicism, I think you are confronted with a lot of that. But we're all involved with the world's worship. And it's easy for me to say, well, I'm going to participate in it to this degree, um, but you know, I'm not really worshiping that as a god. I have my priorities straight. And the question really is, who knows that? Because fundamentally, your participation in that, um, if your life is on a perspective of loving others, is concerned about other people. What do they know about you? Do they know you're not worshiping that God? Do they know who your one true and living God is? Do they know that? You see, once I begin to approach my life as not my own, which, by the way, that's called a Christian life, belongs to Christ. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So Paul tells the Corinthians, yes, you have a cursory knowledge of your liberty, but you really don't grasp it, the significance of it. You are free to be righteous. See, Christian liberty isn't about free to press the limits. It's not to try to push the envelope out there and to see how much you can participate in the old life and still not buy into the philosophies of the old life, um, but rather it is a liberty to get to the center. You are free to come to Christ and to strive to be Christ-like, something that the world cannot participate in. You have the freedom to participate in it. How Christ-like can I be? Was Christ condemned for pushing the envelope a little bit? By some of the legalists, yeah. You know, you're eating with tax collectors and publicans. Your disciples, they pulled some grain off in the field and ate on a Sabbath. Yeah, he dealt with the legalists. But these are not individuals that had any 
real relationship with God. They were legalistic teachers of the day. But we find from the masses, and you'll always have those way out there on that legalistic extreme, the Judaizers types, who will want to impose that, and they'll be critical no matter what level, unless you live at their level of what they perceive to be righteousness. But we find that the masses were just rejoicing to see Jesus' day. That he's going to come and teach us. He's going to live that before us. You see, a knowledge of the principles of God's Word deeply known will be lived out joyously serving others with genuine love. That's what he means by when you really, how much you ought to know something, how deep you ought to apply it, and where wisdom is found is when we hit that balance of understanding the principles of God's Word and recognizing the perimeter of their application is loving God and loving one another. And it is that which honors God. Verse 3, But if anyone loves God, this one is known by Him. I'm going to startle you, I hope, a little bit. Okay? The demons know. Just, just let that sink in a little bit. The demons know. They have an intense knowledge of God. They were in His presence at one point before they fell. The demons know. They were around back there at creation. The demons know. So before we get too exalted in ourselves over knowledge of God or about God and confuse that with a relationship with God, let's make sure that we grasp that, that what God views as a relationship is one based not only upon knowledge, but particularly upon a loving relationship one with another. That He loved us, sent His Son to die for us. We reciprocate that love having trusted in His Son, Jesus, and therefore I'll serve Him. I owe you because you paid for my sin. So let us take warning not to allow knowledge to puff us up. And I take that very earnestly myself as well. It is very easy to be impatient and condemning of others who haven't grasped a certain principle. But once we take on that attitude, we become unusable to God. I would much rather be gentle, loving, so that I have opportunity to teach and to grow in the knowledge I have. This is what Paul tells Timothy, a young pastor. He says, listen, don't get into disputes and arguments because what are disputes and arguments really all about? It's about my knowledge versus your knowledge. Let's argue it out. Point by point. Where's the love in that? Where's the godliness there? 
And so Paul tells Timothy, don't get into those disputes and arguments over words and genealogies and all those things. You stick to the truth. You look to the foundations. And it's not that, that these other issues aren't worth our study and, 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 and uh, grasping of it, but it's let's keep to this core and recognize that you're not going to change those men's minds because the problem isn't their knowledge. The problem is their heart. And make sure that's not your condition, Timothy. Make sure that your heart isn't in the wrong condition. Therefore, and if you become in that condition, you're not going to be able to teach anyone. So you have to maintain a teachable heart and a spirit, a humility that says, yes, I've grasped this truth. I'm not going to argue it with you. I'm going to be patient and loving and pray and see what God's going to work in your life and in mine. Because just because I have acquired a handle on one principle of God's Word doesn't mean I really know it the way I ought to know it. And I find that most of my study during the days I'm not standing here, I know you're pretty sure I only work one day a week, but um, I find that most of my study is not to acquire new knowledge of God. Most of my preaching is not to communicate to you new knowledge of God, but to deepen what we really know. That I might wisely apply it better to my life today than I did yesterday. And by better, I mean more lovingly, more consistent with how Christ would want me to live it out. So let's get to the issue at hand very quickly. It's not going to take us long. Here we go, verse 4. Eating of things offered to idols. Well, once we get the principle that he's already taught in verses 1, 2, and 3, once we understand this concept, now we're going to get into the specific application for the Corinthians. And we can make lots of applications for you and your life as well. But fundamentally, you're right. Idols are nothing. They are so-called gods, but we know that there's no God but Jehovah, God in heaven. He's the only God. In heaven, on earth, there's many that are called gods. There are many that we call lords. They, we, people give them their allegiances. Uh, there's a billion gods in India alone. Um, figure that one out. That's just about one for every 1.2 people. So, kind of interesting. We know that those aren't gods. There's just one God. We have that. That principle we have grasped. It's a truth. There's one Lord Jesus Christ. There's one through whom all things and through whom we live. There's one God. Jesus Christ is in that Godhead and all things applied to the Father. He here applies to the Son. This is a very powerful verse in verse 6 regarding the oneness of God and yet the, the, the pluricity of God. That this one God has an a, a, a amount of plurality to Him, a, a multipleness. So there's the Father, and then there's also one Lord Jesus Christ. And see what He says about the Father in verse 6? Of whom all are all things, and we for Him. And what about Jesus Christ? Through whom are all things, and we for Him whom we are. 
slightly variance of terminology, but fundamentally, everything we say about the Father is true about Jesus Christ, who is God. Once we understand that, there's that one God. We don't serve two or three gods. You know, there's not the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, we're not Trinitarians. Trinitarians believe in threeness. We are triutarians, which says we are three in onenesses. I know that we believe that we hear the Trinity, Trinity, Trinity a lot, but that's really a, a only saying we believe in three. And the Jews of our day have that accusation that you believe in multiple gods. You are Trinitarians. We are triutarians. That is, we believe in three and one. A little bit of difference, but enough. So we know this. We have this principle. We know this truth. And therefore, any engagement with this world in terms of their false gods is empty and void because there's only one true and living God, and I know that. But then we come to verse 7, and we go, boom, however. And here comes wisdom. However. Just because you have that understanding. You have to recognize something. There is not in everyone that knowledge. So you understand it. Great. But what about everyone else? Because you're not here to serve yourself. And by the way, that is why most people are miserable. Because they think they are here just for themselves. That until we are willing to recognize my presence here is to serve God by serving one another, now instead of just thinking about, boy, I've acquired this great spiritual truth. The world is lucky to have me in it now. But rather, I come to it and say, I have this knowledge, but I'm not going to ram it down anyone's throat. I need to live it out consistently with a life that is caringly loving for others and say, if they don't have that knowledge, if they don't know of the oneness of God in, in Jesus Christ and the Spirit and the Father, and, and how am I going to live it out in front of them? How, how am I going to reach them? And how am I going to encourage this brand new Christian to walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel? How am I going to encourage them out of what they were so closely connected to maybe just weeks ago, months ago, um, and if they haven't grown the Lord because they haven't been under the teaching of the Word, it could be years or decades ago. So I'm concerned myself with the immature believer, but I'm also concerning myself with the lost around me because it's my mission to reach them. It's my mission to build up this young believer. And yes, every one of you has that responsibility for one another. I know you all think it's my job. <laughs> I am one little cog in a large machine called the church that is to build up one another in the, fl in, the, in the flesh, in the spirit, in the faith. Each one of you has a role to play in building each other up. And our master carpenter isn't the pastor, it's Jesus Christ. And this is our blueprint. And we are all laborers. 
And so we have this responsibility to build up one another. And so when I see a new believer come in and, and what is the circumstances of our church and, and if we're living just slightly different than the world, doing the exact same things as the world, and they come in here and see nothing fundamentally different, what is their conclusion? Christianity is no different. These people have nothing I didn't have before. Now I'm going to get real personal. Because I'm going to take us out of Corinthians and bring you into the today. We've made a commitment in our church. Whether officially or unofficially, we've made a commitment in our church that you're going to have live sermons. And I say, what's weird about that? Well, believe it or not, That's not the trend. The trend right now is that we get a national speaker that creates a whole bunch of video churches for himself. And we have churches that are designing themselves specifically so that you can walk right in out of the world, right from your entertainment center at home, right into an entertainment center at church. Right from the bowling alley to the church is no heavy transition for you. So you go from this video monitor to this video monitor. You might say, Pastor, do you think TVs and videos are an idol to the world? They are. Absolutely. It is where they worship. It is the number one place that we worship. And Habakkuk describes them very succinctly, our idols. Rocks and metal made to talk. Read it, Habakkuk chapter 2, last four or five verses. Rocks and metal made to talk, to come alive. These are the idols of the last days. You're looking at me like, no way. Says it, Habakkuk chapter 2, go read it. Those are the idols. All right, I'll read it. There we go. This is extra, no charge. Habakkuk, it's somewhere back here. If you were here on Sunday nights during our study of the Minor Prophets, you already know this. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18. What prophet is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that should the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. All right? Idolatry. That's the old world's idolatry. No value in it. We recognize that. Corinthians are told, recognize that. No value. Let's go on. Verse 19. Woe to him who says to wood, awake. To silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. A day will come, and it's a day of woe, when material things are going to be brought alive and teach. It's going to speak. We live in that day. These are the idol of, this is the idol of our day. Now, is it okay for us to bring a projector in here, project up onto our screen and uh, show you uh, excellent Christian movies or um, preachers or training programs? Yes, we have the liberty to do so. We choose not to. Why? Because I don't want to reinforce in any of you the God of this age, the idol of our time. 
Do I have a TV in my house? I have several. Mostly because I have homeschool kids. They each need their own monitor to watch. Literally, our TV teaches our kids. But They sit in a classroom and watch a class and watch a teacher that's not live. Can I do that and still be a, a living, godly, growing Christian? I can because I know what it is and what its dangers are and what to watch out for. I know its purpose is to create in me discontentment. I know that its purpose in me is to wear down my faith in the area of righteousness and to keep knocking off the corners of my conscience so that I can go out there and do things like the world. I know its purpose. I know what Hollywood is trying to accomplish. But it's not fundamentally the television itself that is doing that evil, but what is being pumped through it. But for the Christian, we want to draw you into this and have real relationships and to pull you away from that idol. And so we don't have it here. Go to any classroom. You won't find it. It is the idol of our time. And so... For some, there is not that knowledge that they are worshiping in front of that idol. And let me share with you one of the greatest disasters in Christianity. Is how much time is spent no how much time is wasted for Christ because we're entertaining ourselves in front of the world's idol. The best thing a new Christian can do is get away from it and grow till they learn how to control it instead of letting it control them. My children have gotten really annoyed and they've been that way for years so nothing's going to change because they can't hardly watch a show without dad commenting. And if we watch the same video over and over again, they hear the exact same comments at the exact same places. They're all smiling up here because they know it's true. Why do I do that? Because they're not mature. And it's so easy when they were young to just swallow that as truth because there it is. And it's a video dad lets us watch, so it must be okay and everything there must be true. And so if, even if the, the Waltons and we're watching the Waltons, I'll go, that's not true. And yes, I'll say it every time we watch that episode because it must be communicated because they're trying to communicate error and if we are young in the faith and can't recognize those things, then I have this proposal for you. Stay away from it entirely. Throw it out the door. Because of your conscience. 
if you have a consciousness of the idol, if you know how your life was, how given over to that idol your life has been, just as much as it was for them to eat food offered to idols and to participate in eating as part of their worship, entertainment as part of our worship in this country. So we come to a verse like verse 7 where it talks about um, we know that eating is a, a thing offered to an idol while well, someone is conscious being weak. They're defiled by it. So I can sit and watch something, and, but here's another person weak in their faith or, or perhaps just getting ready to come to Christ and I'm not going to sit them, plop them down in front of Hollywood's version of anything, of anything. Rather, I'm going to engage with them myself. Because I want to draw them out of that life where all that they know is derived from Hollywood and company. So just as for the Corinthians it was food, in our day it is entertainment. Trust me. That's not really entertainment, but worship. So we come to verse 8. And let's apply it. But food does not commend us to God. If we eat, we are, if we, either if we eat, are we better? And if we don't eat, we're not worse. Food is food. Okay, TVs are TVs. Monitors are monitors. Um, they're not going to improve. They're not going to, by themselves, destroy or build you up. They're not going to puff. They're not going to do this for you by themselves. We recognize that. We understand that. That's the principle. And for the mature who are able to deal with that, to control it, we agree. And then verse 9 comes right down. Beware. Beware. Watch out. Yes, I get the principle. I have a lot of Christians giving these principles to me and I just look at them and sorrow is in my heart because what they're saying is, I have a right to do this and here's the Bible verse. And I'm like, do you not care who you'll destroy around you by your lifestyle? Oh, I care. So I'm going to live, not my liberty, I'm going to live a self-imposed confined life to what is excellent, what is best. And those limits are not something I complain about, but I gladly embrace them out of love for others. And I challenge you that if you do truly claim to be mature in the Lord, that you recognize this most powerful principle of Christian living, summing up all the law that we love one another.